you, Michael. I appreciate that. Let's uh, open our Bibles tonight. We're going to look at a passage from another of the minor prophets like we did uh, last week. We're not going to go through all the minor prophets. I just, as I've been reading through some of these things, they've kind of blessed me and uh, seemed applicable. We talked last week about um, in the book of Hosea where God's people, whenever we're under, a nation is under judgment, God's people have to suffer as well as the lost people do. We live in this society and we drink from the same water, so to speak, that the lost world does. And it affects all of us. And yet we're told how we are to live and how we are to react during that time. Because it's in those dark times that our light shines the brightest. So if you'll turn to the book of Micah tonight. And uh, interesting, as I was reading about it, it's uh, the name Micah is a shortened form of the name Micaiah. And that's uh, our grandson's name. So that's kind of neat uh, to see that. But um, as we think about Micah and we think about his, his calling, I, th I think sometimes we have the idea they had an easy job. They just had a, a little book. The minor prophets are named minor, not because they were not important or of minor importance, but because they were smaller than the other ones. Certainly a lot smaller, say, than Isaiah, for example. And uh, yet it has a major message. Some uh, books you see... Uh, major lessons from minor prophets and things like that. But uh, it really was quite a big deal as Micah is doing this. And sometimes these prophets did this in peril of their own lives. Kings did not like to hear things that uh, went against what you know they liked and what was favorable toward them. I would imagine it's still the same way. If you are the president of the United States, you would rather hear good economic news and outlooks and all of that than you would maybe somebody who's telling you it's not going as well as you might think it is. And back in these days when they could actually you know, execute you for giving them bad news, well, then it was extremely dangerous. And yet these faithful men of God would still preach, proclaim these things in peril of their lives, and then they would even write them down. Now think about that. If you say something and somebody says, yeah, well, he said this and this and this, you can always go, oh, no, I didn't say that. No, you misunderstood me. You ever had anybody do that to you? And uh, yet when it's written down, then you can say, oh, no, we've got it right here. And they open up a scroll and, boy, there it is. And you said it, and it was put out and it was published for everyone to see. Kind of like when somebody pulls a, a text or an email or something like that with your words on it and it's a little bit harder to get out of that or if somebody has video of you speaking. And so when we think about this particular book before we get into the text, I want you to understand what was going on. The prophet Micah lived and served God during the time of Isaiah and Hosea. And he spoke against the wickedness of both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, Micah means, who is like the Lord? Can you imagine having a name like that where everybody knew what it meant? They didn't have to guess like we do today. It was a very literal name. And because he mentions that northern kingdom of Israel and its capital Samaria where Ahab and Jezebel ruled and that type of thing. 
Uh, we date the book at 722 years before Christ. Okay, So this is a long time. And uh, sometimes those dates get a little confusing to us because in our calendar, every year is a year older from 2023 to 2024, next year 2025. But remember, because of the date heads towards Christ's coming, they get smaller as they go down. So Assyria invaded Israel in 721 or 22 B.C., but Judah was not invaded by Babylon until 586 B.C. And it might look like at first glance, well, you know, 721 is a whole lot later than 586, but remember they go backwards. And so Judah was taken quite a bit after Israel was. And so Micah, because he preaches against both and talks against both of these kingdoms and the corruption in them. That's how we can date the writing, 722 years before Christ was born. And he primarily addresses corruption. Anybody say amen that that would be a contemporary problem today? Corruption. And corruption both in society and the religion was corrupt in that day in the worship of the people and uh, he's particularly burdened about the southern kingdom Judah that's where he comes from he was from a small agricultural town that was quite a ways south of uh, Jerusalem and so he uh, preaches and prophesies against that southern kingdom of Judah and they thought they were all that in a bag of chips because they had the temple and they had all of these things the rituals and all of that and uh, yet they were just as corrupt, maybe not quite as bad as the northern kingdom, but, but pretty close. Now, what happened in uh, this situation and in this book is there was a group of people, and they were kind of what we would call, um, quote-unquote, the prophet class of people, okay? And they were in collusion with the government. I mean, I don't know, I just thought like CNN, or MSNBC, or something like that. And when Trump was president, they said Fox was in collusion with him, and that was his mouthpiece and all of that. I mean, it happens. In certain newspapers, um, I remember in Arkansas, my grandpa would read every morning the Arkansas Democrat, or some, something like that. Well, they put right up front what party they were for and what they were supporting. Well, this is what the prophets were doing. They made no bones about the fact that they supported the king, they supported the government, and they were making everything rosy because in the corruption that was going on, the prophets, when they would be consulted and uh, they would be asked, is this okay? Oh, yes, this is exactly what God wants. 50 bucks, please. And they would be paid off or maybe 50 million. I don't know. And so uh, the prophets were lying and they were doing it for money and they were corrupt because they were kind of in the king's back pocket, we might say. But there was also another corruption going on. And uh, by the way, false prophets are uh, certainly prevalent in our day as well, aren't they? And then when you look at the other side of things, there was an ungodly evil collusion between government and business. Oh my goodness, do we ever see that? And we see sometimes where a certain senator will promote something. We, we want to promote the use of electric cars for the climate, for the good of the earth, and all of that. 
And then you find out later on after this senator retires, well, they have an electric car battery facility in their state. Of course they want to move to electric cars. And that's the kind of stuff that I think is just, I mean, there's so many examples of things like that going on now. And that's why people go into the Senate or the House of Representatives with a rel relatively normal income, and then they come out multimillionaires. There's just a lot of corruption, a lot of kickbacks, and a lot of one hand washes the other and pushing personal agenda and wealth and all of that type of thing. That was going on way back in 722 B.C. Now, what was happening then is the government and businesses, in, uh, particularly in Judah... They had this system worked out because nearly everybody was some kind of a landowner. You remember that when Moses led the people of Israel out of the uh, bondage in Egypt and then they got to the promised land under Joshua, they conquered the land and then the land was divided up among the various tribes. And then in the tribes it was divided among the various families. That's how they made their living. They were agricultural and livestock specialists. They grew crops. They raised animals. And that's how they made their money. Well, that was something that uh, sometimes you might get in a bind and you might borrow money against your land or at least part of your land. But God had it set up that every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, there was a reset and all of the debts were forgiven and all of the land went back to its original owners or the family of the original owners. Anyway, that was very, very important to God and the Israelis were not to take advantage of one another. In fact, if you were a Jew living in ancient Israel, according to the law of God, you were not allowed to uh, charge interest if you loaned somebody money. Because they are your brothers, the Lord said. And so uh, they were very careful about all of that until we get up to uh, 722 B.C. You say, what was going on then? The government and business had everything kind of rigged. It was fixed and set up so that if you as a landowner, if you had a bad harvest, maybe too bad harvest, you couldn't pay your taxes. You couldn't pay the government fees. And the contracts read that they could come and take over all of your land and kick you off of it. All legal. Every document is right there. They could show it to you. Look, this is the law. This is what was signed. This is what they agreed to. All legal. And yet God said, it's corrupt. And what was happening to these people is they would be kicked off of their land and they effectively didn't have a job. So they would have to go to work for some other landowner for slave labor. And uh, now these people that had owned their land that God had given them were now working for somebody else. And who benefited? Well, the other landowner and the government got its share. In fact, we find that they would use this, the government would use this for the beautification of Jerusalem. I mean, we're going to put all this in so all of you can enjoy it, even though it's all on your backs. And uh, there were other things that were going on, kickbacks and bribery that was taking place. And let's not forget, this is probably how they paid the prophets. You go out there and be our publicist. You go out there and tell them God is on our side. You go out there and tell them this is perfectly legal and this is what everybody agreed to even though it's corrupt, even though it's unjust, 
And even though it clearly violates the spirit of the law of God and the way things are going to go. Oh no, God is for us. God is behind us. You are going to prosper and you know all of this kind of stuff that's going on. And then all of this money that was coming in benefited the government, benefited the public works and those type of things, and benefited the profit class. I mean, when you look at all of this, no wonder God was uh, upset. He didn't like anything like this. So uh, Micah calls out the corruption in all of these things. And uh, so he was probably not a popular guy at the palace, probably not a popular guy in the government circles, probably not a popular guy among some of the businessmen there because they had all of this set up where it all worked together and it all certainly benefited them. And then uh, this led to a corruption in their morality because if you don't have ethics in one area, then you probably don't have ethics in, and morals in any other area too. And so their religion, going to the temple, giving offerings to God, worshiping God, it became burdensome, it became dull, it became just a routine type thing that they would go through. Their hearts really weren't in it. And uh, so then it uh, really turns into a mess. And when that happens, then you know what happens to their morals. And it didn't matter whether it was uh, the moral law of not bearing false witness. didn't matter. Tell a lie if it benefits you. It didn't matter if it was breaking down the family, honor thy father and thy mother. didn't matter. Do whatever is best or good for you. And so a complete breakdown of all of this and oppression of the good people and the normal people that are in here. And so uh, Micah is writing this book to kind of tell normal, everyday people, not, not so much the elites, normal, everyday people, that God's not going to put up with this. Prepare. Get ready for all of this because this is not going to be good. In the Old Testament, uh, there were prophecies that talked about all the people in the nations of the earth coming to Israel to learn and to worship and all of that. But Israel had become so corrupt that there's a little bit of an irony. Yeah, the nations are going to come, but they're not going to come to learn and they're not going to come in peace. They're going to come to besiege you, tear down your walls, destroy your temple and uh, depose your kings and exile the best and brightest of your people. They're going to come and they're going to gather at Israel. Yeah, but they're going to come to get your stuff. They're going to come to make you poor. They're going to come to oppress you. And of course, we saw that happen when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and then later when the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom. Kind of an ironic twist. Yeah, they're coming, but not for what you think. They're coming to deplete you and they're coming to destroy you. And all of this is because of one thing, your disobedience to God, your sin. There is a judgment to pay and God judges nations nations don't live forever nations don't go to heaven and nations don't go to hell nations are judged in this life they are judged in uh, the time that they are on earth and uh, we find that that happened even to the nation of israel and the nation of judah the two kingdoms that had divided now they've got the technicality oh we're still worshiping at the temple and they've got all of them oh these business deals where we took over that land all legal all put it was kind of a mr potter type thing in it's a wonderful life 
And so uh, the Lord is upset about that. And so the book is going to call for judgment, but also for future redemption. Where is the redemption? You ought to read Micah, and you ought to read all of it, and uh, particularly chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the prophecy that says one day the Messiah is coming, and he is going to be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah, which means Bethlehem in Judea, and uh, then things are going to change. And this in Micah chapter 5, this is the passage that when the wise men came into Jerusalem and Herod goes, what, what are you here for? Well, we're here to worship the one who is born king of the Jew and Jews. And Herod goes to the scribes and says, where is the Christ to be born? And they read out of Mac Micah chapter 5 that it was going to be in Bethlehem of Judea, the city of David, not very far from Jerusalem, and that's what got all of that started. So there's prophecy of judgment, but there's also prophecy of redemption and prophecy of grace in all of this because God is not through with his people. And so uh, chapter 5 gives us a hint about that. So let's look in Micah chapter 6 and let's read verses 1 through 8. Verse 8 is going to be very familiar to you. You can probably quote it by memory. But most of the time when we hear Micah 6, 8, we don't hear it in its context. Let's keep it in context. Hear now what the Lord says. Okay, now he's going to say something very interesting. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint and you strong foundations of the earth for the Lord has a complaint against his people. And he will contend with Israel. Those are strong words, aren't they? Contend. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. You, you got your opportunity right now. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I went before you, uh, set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I gave you good leaders, in other words. O oh, my people, remember how what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, what he wanted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. That's referencing the crossing of the Jordan. Uh, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. I blessed you all the way through all of that. Then in verse 6 he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Well, I thought that's what they were commanded to do. With calves a year old? That sounds right, doesn't it? Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and thousands of rivers of oil? Well, now I'm kind of getting the idea maybe not. Maybe he's being a bit sarcastic. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Okay, now this is what leads us into verse 8. The Lord is, in the, and Micah is saying, Really? Is that what pleases God? You, you think so? Well, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you 
but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, it's not what you think and it's not what you're doing. God simplifies it and puts it down in words we can all understand. This is just for normal, everyday people. It's not about what you can offer God. It's not about how, what resources you have. It's not about whether you can fund a Christian college or build a church building or something. That's not the point in all of that. The point is that He's shown you. You know this, and yet you're not doing it. You've heard this before, Micah says. What's your excuse, and what are you doing it? So, Let's kind of go back and think about this. The Lord is calling forth, maybe we might think of it like this, a jury. And he is saying to you, you got a problem with me? You don't like the way I'm doing things? You disobey me? You're running things your own way? You think I don't know what you're doing? Well, then I'm going to call you to testify. But I'm not going to call you to testify against mere humans because they don't know any more than you do. They haven't lived long enough. It's kind of amazing that history is usually defined by our lifetime and what affects us. And I used to hear my parents' generation talk about Pearl Harbor. Didn't mean anything to me. And they would talk about the assassination of John Kennedy. Didn't mean anything to me. I, didn't rem- I don't remember anything about that. Except that uh, something must have got my attention. I was three years old when he was assassinated and we lived in Fort Worth. So the news, you can imagine, was probably saturated with it. And I don't remember any of those events at all. But somehow, by the time I was four or five, I got the idea that whenever I heard the beginning strains of the Star-Spangled Banner, I remember thinking, oh, a president must have died, like it was common or something like that. But I don't remember any of that. But boy, my parents sure did. And my grandparents sure did. And you go on back. Every generation, they look at things and they go, Oh, this is the worst it's ever been. Well, until you go back five generations or go back a little longer and you find out that there's almost always been a time when it was worse and more corrupt. And we wonder, why doesn't God do anything? And that's the same thing people wondered back then. Why doesn't God do anything? And through the prophets, God says, just wait. My patience is a good thing or I would wipe you out right now. I don't have to put up with any of this, but I'm giving you time. And then, as we said last week, he would give warning after warning after warning with the prophets. The only reason to give a warning is for the benefit of the people who are under judgment. This is your chance to repent. This is your chance to get it right. If God really intended just to wipe them out, he would have done it and he would have given them no warning at all. So he is saying now, come and testify, not before people who have a limited, temporary perspective on life. Let's testify before creation. Because you see those mountains that you're going to testify before, and he is persona, there's personification here. If you were to talk to a mountain, the mountain's frame of reverence would not be 10 years, 5 years, 50 years, or whatever. That mountain has been there a long, long time since Noah's flood, right? So let's call the mountains out. Hey, mountains, has God been unjust? Has God been unfair? Has God been cruel to his people? Has God broken his promise? Has God uh, shown himself to be a fraud? 
And you know what the mountains are going to say? No. He's always been faithful. From the very beginning to the very end, he's been consistent. He's been righteous. He's been holy. But he's also been merciful. And he's been kind. And he's been gracious to the people of God particularly. And so God is saying, come and testify before the jury of creation. Where in creation would you find anything that would indict the Lord and say, no, he messed up there. No, he lied there. No, he deceived you there. No, he was fraudulent there. Or no, he kind of tricked you, kind of like they were doing with the land. Oh, it's all legal. We got it all here. Look at the signatures. Look at the dates. Everything is in order, but it was as corrupt as it could be. God's not like that. And Micah's saying, this is not the way you see the Lord. And the Lord is saying, let's air this out. Let's get this out. If you've got a complaint against me, you make your complaint. And I'll be the defendant, so to speak. But the jury is going to be all of creation. What are they going to say as they hear all of this? Well, the heavens declare the glory of God. They're not going to understand this. And they're not going to want anything to do with it. He says in verse 3, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. This is the invitation of invitations. Every time you bow down before an idol, you're saying, this is better than God. Every time you bring an offering to one of the pagan gods or goddesses, you are saying, this is better than God. This God, this goddess, this ritual, this religion is better than the one that we received uh, through Moses. This is better than what was revealed to Abraham. This is better than what we read in the books of the law. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No, this is better. This is better. And so they thumb their nose at God and they worship these false gods that are the creations of their own hands. And God is saying to them, what gives? What's up with all of this? What in the world have I done except bless you? What in the world have I done except instruct you in a better way and in a better life? What have I done except set you free from bondage and bring you to a land that you could never get on your own and you could never conquer without my blessing and I give it to you as a heritage because I promised your ancestor Abraham? Come on. Bring it up and show me where I've sinned. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm corrupt like you are. And so here they are with courtroom situations and courtroom terms here. Now, how would you like to testify, be called to testify against God? Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you. What do you say if you're testifying against God? So help you, God? And can you imagine standing before an all-knowing deity, someone who knows everything you have ever done, everything you have ever failed to do? Worse than that, he knows every thought and every idle word that has ever come out of your mouth. Do you ever uh, kind of get a little, uh, depending on which side of the situation you're on, but... Let's say that uh, here's a presidential candidate and they stand up in a debate and they say, I'm for this and this and I'm against this and this. And then somebody later comes up with a video. Oh, oh, a year ago you contradicted all of that. You know, don't you hear those kind of things? What do you think about that? 
Can you imagine what the Lord, what goods the Lord has on you if he were to call it forth? Can you even begin to imagine what he can remind you of that you've forgotten about? Can you imagine if he had a video and he's calling you to testify and you make your case against God? God wasn't fair to me and God didn't make me happy and God didn't give me what I, I mean, kind of that kind of stuff. And can you imagine when the Lord plays back the video of you saying, I'll serve you forever and I surrender all to you and you are good and you are great. Think about all the songs we sing. Think about all the lies we tell sometimes in all of this. This is the situation. You're going into court against somebody who has all of the evidence against you and he's inviting you to testify against him. You know what I'm going to say? Nope. Not going to do that. I don't stand a chance. I don't care how many subpoenas I get or anything like that. When I'm brought before there, I'm probably just not going to say much of anything because I would end up indicting myself. So this is what God is saying to Israel and Judah. Oh, you think you've got a case? Bring it on. You think you've got evidence? Bring it on. You think that you've got a uh, reason for your disobedience? You think it is justified because I somehow have not done what you think I ought to do? And, you know, nobody would do that today, would they? There was somebody not uh, horribly long ago that they were suing a church because they had tithed their income and they didn't become wealthy. And that's what the pastor had promised. Okay? So people do that. There are some people that said, I prayed for my wife or my children or my grandmother or something to be healed, and God didn't do it, so I'm not going to church ever again. I've had enough of that. I tried it. It doesn't work. People do the same thing today like happened here in the book of Micah and in this period of Jewish history. I mean, it's terrible. And so God says, bring it out. Be honest. Bring it forth. Tell everybody about the whole thing. But you better beware, I have the goods on all of you as well. So this is kind of turning into a mess because um, the people of God can be really fickle at times. So does God deserve um, for us ever to disobey Him or worse, to just disregard him and act like he doesn't matter, act like he doesn't exist, act as though he doesn't have a will, act as though he has no power. And that's what we do so often. So uh, here we are. We complain because we don't like what God does. It doesn't please us. And God says, okay, come on, testimony time. Tell me where I failed. Tell me where I've gone wrong. But be prepared because I also can come back with an answer about you and how you've misunderstood. This is tough, isn't it? Number two, the Lord testifies of his goodness to Israel and Judah. What have I done, he said. And then he answers, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Well, they didn't deserve that. And they couldn't have done that themselves. 
But God in his kindness and grace, he tells Moses in the backside of the desert, I have heard the groaning of my people Egypt and I'm going to send you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And then I'm going to back it up with my power and my presence through the plagues to make sure that it happens. And I'm going to bring slaves out of Egypt into the desert through the Red Sea. I'm going to take them to Canaan. I'm going to dispossess the ungodly people of Canaan and I'm going to give that land just like I promised in Genesis 15 to Abraham. You're going to inherit this and you don't deserve any of it. In fact, they uh, no more than get out of Egypt and what do they do? They make a golden calf and bow down before him. I mean, it's just a terrible thing. They constantly moan and complain. Oh, we're out here in the desert and, and oh yeah, you're feeding us, but you're not feeding us what we want. Oh, it was so much better in Egypt. Yeah, uh, tell me that again. And uh, we had all the meat we wanted to eat in Egypt. I kind of doubt that, knowing the history of slavery. And uh, yet God puts up with them over and over and over and over and over again as they go through the wilderness for those 40 years. So I brought you out of the house of bondage. And I went before you, I set before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I mean, you can't complain about the leadership this, this is a dream team of leadership. And uh, there they are with uh, following the brightest and best of, of all of them. Moses, after all, the book of Hebrews says, he was skilled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That was a class A world empire back in those days. And Moses had that knowledge. And so here they are heading forth. Uh, to the promised land and God gives them water out of a rock if they need it he gives them manna uh, every day and then when they complain about that he gives them quail and uh, then when they get into the promised land what happens there he parts the river Jordan so that they can go across and they go into the promised land by the power of God they march around Jericho and the walls come tumbling down right they couldn't do that. They couldn't conquer a square inch of that land by themselves, but they had the power of God. And God's saying, so what's your problem? What is it that you're going to say against me? What is it you're not thankful for? Where is it that I have failed? And this is just amazing. And then he reminds them about how Balak, the king of Moab, hired the prophet Balaam to go out and put a curse on Israel. And he went out to do that, but yet something strange happened. God took over his vocal cords, and instead of a curse, a blessing came out of his mouth on Israel. And he talks about opening up, uh, of course, the, the river, as we said, for them to cross and giving them everything. And he says that they may know the righteousness of the Lord. In other words, God is right, God is faithful, and God does everything he's supposed to do. So my question would be, you're down in the mouth, you're all upset, and you're kind of griping and you're kind of complaining because you don't feel like God has done you right. Well, what happens if we stir up your memory? Where has God done things that were right? Where has God blessed you? Look where he brought you from. Look what he has given you. Look how he has poured himself into your life. What reason do you have to complain? The church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation in the second chapter were kind of like that. And they had grown, uh, you know, they left their first love. 
They just weren't as passionate about God anymore. And the very thing that God says is, Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, and repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And there's the idea that we have faulty memories. And we were so excited about what God did for us 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 50 years ago, perhaps. But what about today? And would we bring an indictment against God that somehow he has been unfaithful? And God says basically to his people, bring it on. I'm ready for you. Do you need time, Lord, to prepare your case? Nope. I'm ready now. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, ever-present God is ready to step into the uh, courtroom and to testify against his own people, a complaint, a legal term against his people. Thirdly, notice that the Lord exposes Israel and Judah's self-righteousness and their cover-up. Now, this is interesting. When you get down to verse 6 and following, how are you going to approach the Lord? And he even goes down at the end of that section, uh, do I need to give my firstborn the fruit of my body in order to uh, have my sins covered and put it up there uh, and enter before the Lord? And, uh, of course, the prophet is being sarcastic because we know that even if you did offer your firstborn child that wouldn't cover your sins and then he goes back you know a little bit and he says well what about if we offer an animal to the lord well if one is good ten thousand must be better if a little oil is good what if we had ten thousand rivers of oil what if we went all the way to offering a child a family member before the lord would that qualify you to come into his presence and shake your fist to make demands of him as though he owes you something and the answer of course is no and yet so many people think, even today, that they can live any way they want to live, rebel against God, do what they want to do, but then I'll go to church and I'll cover it up. Then I'll go to Sunday school and I'll cover it up. Oh, I'll write a check and give it to the church and that'll cover everything that I do. In other words, they have the idea that if I can do enough stuff, do enough rituals so that I look quote-unquote, obedient to the Lord, and I look like I am a follower of God, well, certainly the Lord won't bring any chastisement or judgment upon me for that. And God says, all you are doing is playing a game to make yourself look holy, and I see right through it. Can you imagine? We gather and we sing, holy is the Lord, great is the Lord. And God says, stop it, I see right through it. Sing that 10,000 times, you think you're going to be any more right with God? No. Sing that every day for the next three weeks, 24-7. Does that make you right with God? God says, no, that's a cover-up. I see it. You only do that when other people are looking and you really don't care what I see when I look at your heart. You see what's happening here? This is a tough situation here. A self-righteous cover-up. Using rituals to cover up their sin. Yeah, we worshipped at the temple of Baal. But we also gave a really, really big offering at the temple. Doesn't that count for something? No. No. God says, I want all of you. And I want you wholeheartedly to serve me. Will the Lord be pleased with that? And the answer there 
even if it's thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil, even if it were to the point of giving your firstborn for your transgression, which, of course, you would never do, and God would not want you to do that, but it doesn't cover and it doesn't uh, fix everything like that. That's kind of like when you go to a priest and you confess your sins, and the priest says, I will absolve you, but I want you to go and say, you know, 1,000 Hail Marys. What does that do? What is that going to give you? It's the same thing if you're watching somebody and they say, if you really want to be free from disease and free from trouble, you need to write a check and I'll send you a pen with anointed ink and you can write that check on there and you give it to me and uh, all of this will be lifted off of you. That's ridiculous kind of stuff. Superstition. Paganism. It's ungodly. And it's sinful. Well, that's what they were doing. And we many times tried to do exactly the same thing. Okay, God, I know I've sinned. and You know, I'm kind of sorry for it. What can I do to make it up to you? And at the same time, when I'm doing this to make it up to you, make sure that I look good in front of other people too so that they'll think I'm really repentant and really holy. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but uh, within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Could that be said of anybody today? I mean, we play that same game today, don't we? Micah might have something to say to us. And then fourthly, as we finish up here, the Lord makes the standard very clear. I love this. I love this because the Lord says, I don't want all of your animals. I don't want all of your oil. I don't even want your children. Don't, don't treat me like I'm the death god Moloch that you burned your children from. I'm not like that. But he has shown you, O oh man. In other words, Micah is going, you know this. You know this. He's made it abundantly clear what he wants. And it's not about your stupid animals. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. You know this. And what does the Lord require of you? Do justly. In other words, live right. Love mercy. Treat other people right. And then, most importantly, walk humbly with your God. That sums it all up, doesn't it? Because if you're doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, you don't have any problem obeying Him. You don't have any problem treating other people right. You won't try to oppress them with a loophole. You won't try to use other people so you can gain whatever you can, like the corrupt government was doing during this time. Listen, this is easy. Or is it? It's simple. He has shown you, oh man, this is not unclear. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You know, it reminds me when Jesus was asked, oh, we were so burdened down by the law and we worked so hard to keep all of the law. That's, that's kind of my parenthesis in that. So what is the great commandment so we can have it all in order? And Jesus said, you want the great commandment? Yeah, I want the great commandment. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then there's a second one too that flows out of that and love your neighbor 
as you love yourself. And when Jesus did that, he was quoting out of the book of Deuteronomy. That wasn't something that he just kind of made up. It's uh, what he found in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm reminded that uh, Saul the king had problems with this. And when he disobeyed God, he thought, Oh, I can make up for this if I just say, Oh, all these sheep that I was supposed to kill, we'll kill them all right for a sacrifice. And then God will be happy and in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than your sacrifices. I want to add in there your stupid sacrifices. And to listen, to hearken, than offering the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and um, is as uh, iniquity and uh, as bad as idolatry is what it says. So Micah 6, 8 is the antidote calling for a spiritual commitment of the heart and of a right relationship with other people and uh, treating other people the way God would want you to treat them as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and as it also says in Leviticus chapter 19. Both of those things are in there. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love God. Love your neighbor. The same thing Jesus said and the same thing even that Paul said in the first part of Romans. If you'll love God and love your neighbor, that's the law and the prophets. And so Micah is bringing this indictment and he's saying, oh really? You've got a case? God has a case against you and he's calling you into court to testify and he sees everything about you and everything about you is up for him to use as evidence against you man Micah's tough isn't he and you can imagine too he was taking his life in his own hands kings don't like to hear this religious people don't like to hear this moral quote-unquote people don't like to hear this and yet it's what they need to hear. Well, isn't that mean and isn't it unkind? No. Micah is doing the most loving thing of all. He's telling sinners how to get right with God. And that's why we have the gospel in a corrupt and dark world telling sinners how to get right with God. Whether they like it or not, it's just the way it is. We need to be as bold as Micah and Hosea were in this dark world because... Our nation is in trouble, our culture is in trouble, our families are in trouble, our marriages are in trouble, our society is in trouble, our churches are in trouble, and there's only one solution. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And you know it. Why aren't you doing it? Micah would say. You know this. Don't plead ignorance. You know this. We need to be, and I'll be through here, doers of the word and not hearers only it's good to hear the word but it's supposed to lead to action okay we can see all of that before we leave tonight i would like for as many of you as can together around miss nancy elkins she is going to have knee replacement surgery tomorrow and i think we ought to pray for her as we leave tonight so go ahead and gather up around her and uh, we won't make her kneel or do anything like that.